0: Today we have an amazing uh, podcast, Um, amazing uh, for two reasons. One, uh, it is my uh, final podcast as editor-in-chief. The other uh, reason that it's amazing is because of the other participants on the podcast. So we have both um, Josh Hirsch and Ronil Chandra on the podcast today. Um, Josh and Ronil authored an Editor's Choice uh, uh, article for the December issue of Jan, I asked the the, um, title of the article is Analysis of Vertebral Augmentation Practice Patterns, a 2016 Update. Um, Josh, as everyone knows, uh, is from uh, the Massachusetts General Hospital and is um, renowned in in the northern hemisphere. Reniel is at um, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia and he is renowned in the southern hemisphere. So we we definitely have the whole globe covered uh, today, um, uh, guys. It seems like this is a, a very exciting time for vertebral augmentation.
1: Rob, it indeed is an exciting time. But I would remiss to not acknowledge how uh, excited and at the same time. Uh, sentimental we are uh, to be participating in your last podcast as editor-in-chief, having uh, worked with you from the beginning. It's really been a privilege to see what you've done uh, with the journal and even thinking about our early podcasts where uh, we had just a couple of listeners to ones that have over a thousand downloads. Uh, Just the growth of the journal under your leadership has been spectacular, and uh, Ronil and I are both really honored to be a part of this legacy uh, podcast. You're absolutely right. Vertebral augmentation is at a uh, a crossroads and an exciting time. Uh, As this is the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery, I really think we should take two seconds and acknowledge the role that neurointerventionalists had in the development of this procedure, specifically in 1993 at the University of Virginia, uh, Jacques Dion, Lee Jensen, others, others who are well known in our community, did the first augmentation. Their practice rapidly evolved to the treatment of osteoporotic patients. And in 1997, they published one of the most cited articles in the AJNR history, really on the technical performance of this new procedure called vertebroplasty. The vertebroplasty and then kyphoplasty experience exploded over time because there was such favorable reporting uh, at an anecdotal level, at a case series level, and even at a trial level. In 2009, though, there was a, a real uh, fly in the ointment, and that probably understates it. Two articles were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, the lead investigators of one of those articles is actually a neurointerventionalist who we all know well and respect, Dave Calmes. Uh These articles fail to demonstrate a convincing benefit of vertebroplasty over what I'll call a controlled intervention. And something we've lamented was that this was followed by a period of uh, acrimony and serious uh, division between uh, what would uh, properly, I guess, be called evidence-based medicine specialists and uh, clinicians, practicing clinicians. I would say that the practicing clinicians probably thought of themselves as evidence-based compassionate specialists, and the evidence-based medicine specialists probably thought that they had important things to contribute to the clinical sphere. But what ended up happening was there was such angst about the studies that there were limited opportunities to learn or to criticize or to actually draw information from those trials. And that, that was something that we've lamented as an unfortunate opportunity in more uh, than one publication. At about that time, our group took a look at the CMS database and and saw the immediate impact of the those two trials on the vertebral augmentation space, and there was an immediate impact. And in fact, using that same database, in light of the recent Vapor publication in the Lancet, where I was honored uh, to write the invited commentary with my friend, uh, colleague, and just someone that I think the world of from, as you said, down under, Ronil Chandra, where we saw a clear convincing benefit of vertebroplasty against what would be more properly considered uh, a sham. And the good news about that is it reinvigorated debate. Uh, folks like Roniel and myself that uh, have our careers grounded in evidence, uh, as well as uh, the clinical application of these techniques, uh, were uh, quick to jump on the opportunity to, to talk about the data that's out there, think about contextualizing uh, the pain people were suffering, and uh, uh, go from there. So with that in mind, we went and looked at the same CMS database uh, right after the, the vapor trial came out. And Roniel, what did we learn?
2: So when we looked at that database, Uh, We examined uh, vertebral augmentation procedures from 2004 to 2014 and we saw a substantial decline in the rates of vertebral augmentation over that 10-year period. So particularly, uh, more so for vertebroplasty, a 63% decline over that 10-year period while kyphoplasty declined more modestly at around 10%. Um, What was interesting, however, is when we divided up the five-year periods, as in the prior to the New England trials versus after the New England trials in 2009, and in particular after the New England publication, vertuboplasty decreased by approximately 50% over that four-year period, um, while kyphoplasty actually slightly increased, only by 5%. But there was a significant difference between uh, these two techniques over that time. And this really suggests that that 2009 New England publication had quite a considerable and ongoing impact on the utilization rates in that Medicare population. And that was in spite of an overall you know, slight increase in the Medicare population over the age of 65 at that time.
0: I don't perform these procedures, but um, I was just interested why you think that kyphoplasty was not affected as greatly as vertebroplasty.
1: Rob, you hit it on the head with your question. I think vertebroplasty was studied in the two trials. Kyphoplasty was not. There are more similar than they are different, but that had, I think, direct consequences in how people thought about uh, the referrals. There's also... Probably influences from the fact that uh, kyphoplasty uh, means uh, more significant remuneration for the companies that uh, support it, as the product prices are higher, and in non um, and in specific site of service locations, not based specifically on professional uh, billings there is probably a greater margin in doing kyphoplasty than uh, vertebroplasty. So I think there are multiple practical reasons this occurred. I think there's also important data in the literature that have come out from uh, Ediden, uh who uh, studied uh, uh, claims data, looking at a four-year uh, sample of the CMS database, and from the Chan group, which is at Johns Hopkins, which looked at, again, a sample of patients and found a mortality benefit of uh, what they call surgical versus non-surgical management. In this case, surgical management is uh, both vertebroplasty and kyphoplasty, and kyphoplasty was uh, more uh, impactful in terms of that benefit in both of those studies, both the Johns Hopkins study and the Ediden, uh study. I think the final reason is that there's been a growth of uh, treatment for cancer Uh, The CAFE study is the best evidence in cancer. It specifically looked at the question of uh, kyphoplasty and was extremely favorable against conservative medical management. Uh, Between that and other forms of kyphoplasty like RFA and things of that sort, I think that explains the uh, relative outperformance of kyphoplasty versus vertebroplasty. I I, I would pivot the question, though, to Roniel, because I think reimbursement does play an important uh, role. Roniel, do you want to help read my mind and tell people what I'm thinking about?
2: I'm hearing you there, Josh. With regard to reimbursement, um, at the time after the 2009 trials, the Medical Services Advisory Committee in Australia, which funds um, the Medicare... um, Uh, patient population was re-examining the data. It was a planned review at five-year mark, and that was occurring in 2010. And just at that time, the 2009 trials um, had come out. So when they reviewed the data up to 2010, which included the 2009 trials, um, they felt that uh, the evidence to perform these procedures, both vertebroplasty and kyphoplasty, um, you know, did not meet the uh, bar for them to continue funding this procedure. So the decision was to withdraw public funding for this procedure. And what that meant in Australia was that um, the utilization rates uh, were quite markedly affected and the rates dropped right off uh, because there was a uh, lack of funding now, what's been unique about this Sydney group is that they continue, they, they've always been a believer in this procedure, and they continue to recruit patients in this particular trial um, and actually prove that benefit. The other comment, just uh, fin- uh, finishing on your previous comment, is that currently the differences between vertebroplasty and kyphoplasty, all the kyphoplasty trials to date have been positive. Um, and there have been fewer ones of them, both in the malignant population and the osteoporotic population. However, the vertebroplasty population has received a variable trial result, uh, and particularly the New England trials were published in quite high-impact-factor journals, while the subsequent trials since 2009, of which there have been approximately eight performed in over 1,000 patients, they were published in journals with much lower impact factors, and really uh, did not receive the same type of media attention as the New England trial. I, I would
1: I would make the point for the broad listenership, though, uh, Roniel, that um, the kyphoplasties did not study in any of those cases against a control intervention or uh, sham, and um, the responses of vertebroplasty against conservative therapy tended to be extremely positive in the past as well. So I, I, there is a a natural validity to, to Rob's question about why there's been this widening delta. Uh, I do think that as believers in kyphoplasty, like we both are and other participants in the community, it does say that at some point we have an onus uh, to prove that against uh, sham, uh, and in my opinion, um, uh, a true sham like subcutaneous lidocaine injection, there is a benefit of kyphoplasty. I, I think when that occurs, it'll be much like what happened in the world of stroke to bring it back to our JNIS roots in that um, it's almost hard to remember uh, that we feared national coverage determinations after the IMS3 uh, synthesis expansion, uh, mister uh data came out. It really was uh, uh, more at risk than I think people uh, may even realize today. Whereas now, advocates for stroke don't have to worry about arguing with insurance companies. People see the clear benefit. I I have aspirations that as we become more of a value-based uh, system, paradoxically, this procedure will become actually much more popular with insurance companies and along care pathways. Because to me, the, the benefits that are achievable in terms of savings with rehabilitation, savings with back braces, uh, being able to have uh, less narcotic medications. Essentially, the things that were compared in the trials you cite, conservative management, I think uh, bode favorably for these procedures. And that's part of what I mean that it's its exciting that the discussion has come back to, uh, hey, where does this fit in the care continuum of osteoporotic and cancer patients? And and frankly, I think it actually uh, uh, should be pointed out that those are our limitations here in the United States. Uh, in Europe, they're using this procedure to treat acutely traumatized patients. And uh, ourselves, Roniel, others have published in JNIS and other places uh, using these techniques in sites outside of the traditional thoraco thoracolumbar uh, column. For example, the sacrum, the cervical, spine, the calcaneus and the acetabulum. So it, it's worthwhile considering um, where the field might uh, go. And and Roniel, I would ask you that uh, uh, you consider or tell us, when you think about the fact that the data is really, uh, hopefully going to, to turn as it did for stroke, and you think about
2: all the new opportunities in the field, what excites you the most? I, I think there are a lot of themes that are exciting going forward, and I, I think the three broad themes are really, I guess when we're looking at the spine, I guess there's um, implants designed to increase vertebral height or reduce cement extravasation, um, such as, you know, the Kiva system, um, where they have a nitinol coil and then the bone cement injected into the implant, or the spine jack system, um, you know, with the intervertebral body implant. Um, but for tumor-related fractures, you know, another theme is the tumor ablative type therapies and their role, um, because I think there's probably an exp- going to be an expanding role for uh, tumor ablation and augmentation, both in the spine at, and at other sites as well. And then the new sites that you talk about, I think particularly um, in the sacrum, very underutilized site and the weight-bearing areas of the acetabulum and these are areas that, uh, you know, you and I have previously published on in JNIS, um, and there's expanding roles in the ribs and other sites for palliative pain relief. So, I think um, design, you know, implants are designed to reduce cement extravasation and other issues for malignant fractures, the tumor and of therapies, and expanding role for new sites.
1: So, Rob, Dr. Tarr would normally listen to these things as an interactive and interested moderator but knowing he's going into retirement uh perhaps he's listening <laughs> with an ear towards uh the future um, rob i know you're going to want to conclude the podcast and i'm glad uh that that uh, made you smile um i just want to say uh that uh before you do uh you know there are rare moments in in one's professional career that are very special it's very special to be on a podcast Uh, with an expert who trained with me. Um, Similarly, Rob, uh, it's been really one of my great professional privileges to work with you over the last few years and see what JNAS has done under your stewardship and the fact that you honored us by uh, allowing us to participate in this last podcast really means quite a bit uh, uh, to, I think, both of us. So thank you very much.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much.
0: Well, guys, um, thank you for your kind words, and um, thank you for spending time with me today. It was an excellent erudite discussion, um, and um, uh, thank you. Thank you again.